Hello, my name is Ben Jenkins and welcome to another episode of the New Grad Radio podcast. The podcast following the experiences of a new graduate nurse starting into the intensive care unit. So as a student nurse, I never had the opportunity of having an ICU placement. I had pretty much everything but. <laughs> so I had a lot of different, you know, ED was like a large focus of what I had. I was in birth suites, I was in CCU, you name it, I was pretty much there. But I never had ICU. So after watching a whole bunch of um, students coming through now, the ICU that I'm working in, it's really got me thinking about, you know, what advice would I give myself if I could turn back the time, knowing what I know now, three months into my graduate year, what would I tell myself to really look out for or practice during my two to four week placement within the ICU? So... I've really been thinking, and I, to be fair, I wrote down so, so much. I pretty much wrote pages of things that, that sort of sprung to mind about the things that you know, I'd really have loved to know uh, to prepare for either my grad year in ICU or any sort of skills that are transferable to any areas of nursing. So I've ended up making six different points. Um, so pretty much a top six of, of what, uh, what advice that I would give myself um, to, to be looking at. So we'll get underway with it and we'll start with number six. Before we jump into number six, I just wanted to say that as a student, you've always got things that your university is going to get you to try to tick off. Uh, so first of all, always concentrate on those ones first. That's why you're there as a student nurse is to be meeting the criteria of what your uni is trying to get you to do so that's of course number one <laughs> uh, but number two always make sure that you're working within your scope of practice there are some things that you just can't do as a student nurse so be mindful of what those sort of things are and make sure again that you're working within your scope so all right let's just jump into it starting off at number six we're going to be talking about the different types of patients that are presenting to the intensive care unit so not all ICUs are built the same and not all ICUs are able to care for the same types of patients. The ICU that I'm working in, for example, is a major trauma centre. So the big major trauma jobs, uh, so the, the patients who are involved in major car accidents or plane crashes or you know, dirt bike accidents or whatever it could be in terms of trauma, they're, they're most likely going to be flown to this ICU that I'm working in. But then you also have all of these other types of specialties that the ICU I'm working in is able to cater for as well. But then if it's anything to do with burns or obstetrics or paediatrics, well then they're going to be going to different ICUs that are able to care for really sick patients as well. But then you also have different ICUs, could be in you know, rural or remote areas, and they're able to care for some pretty sick patients, but if they're not able to care for their patients, most likely they're going to be into hospital transferred to, for example, the type of hospital uh, and the ICU that I'm working in as well. So as a student nurse, it's really important to do your readings and to understand what types of patients are coming in. When you come onto your shift, um, I'd be reading up your, your patient notes, you know, understanding why they presented to the hospital, um, looking back at how they presented to the emergency department, um, and, and just sort of get a, a bit of a clear history of exactly why they're there. Uh, when you start to see patient after patient, and really as well, when you, when you come up to your shifts, it's great to get a, a diverse array of patients as well, because then you start to just, you know, obviously be 
exposed to a few different things, but um, you, you start to develop an understanding of exactly why they're there. Coming in at number five is a topic that I'm sure so many people want to hear about, and it's a topic that I was really excited to start doing as an ICU nurse, is going to be talking about mechanical ventilation. So to start with, I'm going to say pretty much up straight, there is so much to do with mechanical ventilation. Um, and it's a good thing and a bad thing in a way. So it's, a, it's good because, again, it's a whole different dynamic of something to learn about. But then the bad thing is, is that you could certainly get bogged down with trying to learn too much about it. Now, as you've probably heard on a few of my other episodes in this podcast, it's taken me a while to get my head around the concepts of mechanical ventilation. You've got textbooks dedicated to the topic. There's so much to learn. And it's taken me three months now to get to a point where I'm starting to feel comfortable um, understanding the fundamentals. <laughs> um, it's, uh, there, there's a lot. And so when it comes to mechanical ventilation, I've got a few little helpful hints that I would certainly give myself to keep me on track. So number one is understanding why the patient is intubated in the first place. You know, there's so many reasons why a patient who's presenting to the ICU has needed to be intubated. Um, so when you're looking at the patient, so for example, number six was all about, you know, why is the patient in the ICU in the first place? Understand, you know, what has led this patient to have that endotracheal tube in their mouth or the tracheostomy and why, why are they mechanically ventilated? The second is going to be the difference between uh, positive pressure ventilation, which you have on a, on a ventilator, and negative pressure ventilation, which we all do when we're breathing normally with on-room air. Um, you'll start to see the differences between the pressure gradients, and um, it, it's, it's definitely a topic that marries up really well with what you learn at university. So. I'd definitely be at the textbooks out for that one and, and to be asking your bedside nurses as well the reasons uh, why there's a difference between positive pressure and negative pressure ventilation. Um, the next part is I've, I really wouldn't get bogged down too much on the modes. Um, the, the most I'd really be telling myself is going to be there are modes in which the, the ventilator does all of the work for the patient and that there are modes in which the patient is doing the majority of the work. There are components to the ventilator settings in which we can increase or decrease to make it easier for the patient to breathe or uh, to increase you know, oxygen concentrations and all of this other stuff. But if you keep it really simple, I feel like you're going to get the, the most bang for your buck with your time in the ICU. Number four. So at university we're taught that if someone sat or their oxygen saturations are starting to drop, they've got increased work of breathing and increased shortness of breath, where to start heading towards some sort of oxygenation device. So if we're starting off slow, we can use nasal prongs at a flow rate of around one to four liters per minute. We can then start heading it up a little bit and go towards a Hudson mask, or then working your way up if someone's really starting to, to be a bit sick to a non-rebreather mask. We still do this within the intensive care unit. However, we have a few more extra tools at our disposal. For example, we can have high flow nasal cannula, CPAP and BiPAP, or even heading towards endotracheal tubes and tracheostomies for a patient who's on a ventilator. 
Now, the biggest things and takeaway I'd have is to have a look at when are each of these going to be used and also the relationship between FiO2 and flow. Now, for someone who's on nasal prongs, for example, you can have the, the if you've ever put nasal prongs in your own nose, which I'd highly encourage you to do, but you've got a flow rate of, you know, one to four liters per minute. If you've ever turned it up higher than that, the oxygen really starts to irritate the back of your nose. It starts banging the back of your nostrils and after only a short while, it starts to really hurt. With high-flow nasal cannula, you can have a piece of equipment that looks very similar to nasal prongs, except you can have flow rates of up to 60 litres per minute. Now, you can imagine, <laughs> if you tried normal nasal cannula at the back of your nose at 60 litres per minute, if it starts to hurt anywhere, you know, even in 8 litres per minute, it starts to hurt. So how can you have it that high? Well, that's where humidification comes into play. You start to humidify the oxygen. Now, that's one of the, the roles our own nostrils do. So physiologically, we have, you know, when we breathe in through our nose, it creates turbulence and it also humidif humidifies the air. Well, what we do with the high-flow nasal cannula is that we humidify the oxygen through like a humidification device. Uh, which allows us to really increase the amount of flow that's putting into it. And I really would like, you know, if I was there, I'd be looking into and asking my nurses exactly why we need to increase the amount of flow going in. There's also FiO2. So at around, so fractionative inspired oxygen, or FiO2, is the oxygen concentration that we can deliver. Now, through nasal prongs, at the one to four litres per minute, we're only sort of getting, you know, a room air, we're having 21% uh, oxygen. With nasal prongs, we're starting to head up towards about 28%. And the higher you go with the different oxygenation tools, such as your Hudson mask and uh, um, non-rebreather masks, it starts to increase the FiO too, but not as high as nowhere near around 100%. What we can do with high-flow nasal cannula is we can deliver an FiO2 of up to 100%. And we can titrate it anywhere in between. So we're titrating flow and we're titrating FiO2. Then you start looking at concepts such as BiPAP and CPAP, which are, to be fair, pretty, they're pretty advanced concepts. Um, we also then have the endotracheal tubes and tracheostomies on a ventilator. So then you might be able to say, well, okay, if we're able to deliver such high FiO2 and such high flow, why does the patient need to be ventilated? Well, that's where you need to understand the concepts of, of ventilation, which is going to be a, a, different, a different topic of um, this, this presentation as well. So anyway, these are just some things to consider. I'd, I'd be looking at FO2, flow and humidification. Number three. So there are a few different diagnostic procedures as well as a few invasive monitoring devices that we can use within the intensive care unit. So for example, at university I was taught that there are things called arterial lines and central lines and that with central lines we can measure fluid status, um, we can look at, it, it provides a, a port in which we can deliver you know, large volumes of fluid or different toxic medications directly into the system 
it's sitting you know in the superior vena cava just above the right atrium of the heart um, these are all things that you know were on tests and stuff like that but it all seemed pretty abstract I, I couldn't really marry it to practice very well because only really areas such as the intensive care unit uses them and as I didn't have a placement through intensive care I just it just didn't really click and it wasn't until I started using it every day and I started seeing exactly what it was and I started to see these devices be you know inserted by the doctors it then started to make sense so I was able to marry the practice you know the the information taught at uni with actual practice um, within the clinical setting so one one piece of advice is you know obviously you taught these things at uni really listen out for the theory of it because now we're able to see it every day it, it all starts to make sense and that also same thing goes with diagnostic procedures so we have x-ray x-ray portable x-rays that come around by the radiologists most patients do every single morning um, and that's to be able to see uh, you know for lung fields you know is there any areas of consolidation is there any pneumothorax you're able to see where exactly the the central line is placed and if it's in the correct position and the same thing goes for the orogastric or the or the nasogastric tubes in which they how they're being fed seeing if that's in the right position and same with the endotracheal tube or the tracheostomy is that still at the correct length so that's just one form of imaging but then you can also see the MRI um, CT scans ultrasounds um, one, one awesome thing that I'd highly recommend um, you know you may have gone to the MRI or CT before with a patient from the ward uh, you may yourself have experienced a CT scan or an MRI um, but one, one very clear difference within the intensive care unit is that these patients are often intubated which means that they're ventilated on a ventilator they're also attached to these things such as the central line uh, which again isn't attached to all these different infusions that are running at the same time you've also got the arterial line attached to them you've got all these things just attached to your patient um, so it is a big job to be able to get a patient from the bed space in the intensive care unit down to areas such as the MRI and CT. You know, you need to have a portable ventilator, which you need to do all the checks for. You need to have the, the infusion tree being pushed along at the back. You need to have all the rescue medications all ready to go just in case something were to happen on the way from um, ICU to, to, the, to the MRI or CT. So it's a, it's a big event, <laughs> so it takes a lot of work, so that would be awesome. I'd certainly recommend you to put your hand up to, to go have a look at how that works as well. Um, so it really along the way as well, it's an opportunity to ask these professionals questions. You know, if they've got some time, uh, picking their brains on, especially your nurse, to be asking you know, why exactly they're going down to have an MRI or a CT. Uh, at uni, you're sort of taught the basics of what it's there for, but now you can really see it with a real patient as well, which makes a huge difference. So that would be one thing I'd certainly recommend. Uh, look at the diagnostic sort of material, uh, the diagnostic procedures, and have a look at the invasive monitoring that there is in the ICU. Number two is going to be the development of my nursing skills. Now, every single shift, you'll be performing a head-to-toe systematic assessment. You're going through the different systems of the body and you're understanding the different components that are fit within each of those systems. Now, 
within the intensive care unit, you have so many different health professionals that all bring their own specialty pieces of knowledge to the table uh, for the benefit of the patient. Now, for example, you have the respiratory system. One component of the respiratory system is going to be oscillating chest sounds. One professional that does this exceptionally well is going to be the physiotherapist. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a student paramedic and a student nurse, one thing that, I, I don't know, like I, I, would, I did it a lot, but it's so far and few between as a student nurse. You, you start to learn the theory in the classroom for things that you may be listening for. So for example, with an asthmatic patient, you're saying that you're listening for a wheeze. Um, when, you, when you hear a wheeze, you'll understand what a wheeze sounds like. And I think that we've all at one time or another heard what a wheeze sounds like. But there are a few other different types of sounds which may not be as evident and you may not know exactly what they may sound like. So for example, you hear about crackles. It's just one form. You've got, you know, you've also got plural rub and you've got bronchial sounds and transmitted sounds and all these different things, but let's just stick with, with crackles for now. You've also, you've got different components of crackles. You've got fine crackles and you've got coarse crackles. Now, I honestly could not tell the difference. <laughs> like to me, like it just wasn't something that I was doing enough to understand. But when I started in the intensive care unit, every single patient, multiple times a day, I'm listening and oscillating chest sounds. And when I came across something I didn't quite understand, I was asking my bedside nurse and I was also asking the physio when they came around as well. Now, when you listen to chest sounds over and over and over again, you start to develop what sounds normal and what is abnormal. Now, especially when the physio would come around for their treatment, because the physios listen to chest sounds with every single patient all day, every day. So their skills when it comes to this skill are you know, incredibly refined. Um, probably talking them up a lot here, but that's awesome. But um, they've, they've taught me so much. So when I came across something I didn't quite understand what it was, I'd ask the physio whilst they're there. And because I have so much experience, they were able to tell me, this is what this sound sounds like. So this is just one example of whilst you're in the intensive care unit, really try to utilize the expertise of these health professionals my skills have come along exponentially when it's come to like chest oscillation because I'm doing it so often and I'm able to have all of these health professionals and use their advice um, and their skills and it's been helping a lot. Another one which I'm currently learning at the moment is heart sounds. It's a different beast again but I've been utilizing the doctors when they've been coming around. They're experts when it comes to this sort of stuff as well. And then also you have in the morning, they, they come along really quickly, but you have the different specialty teams that come to the ICU as well. So when it comes to chest sounds, um, well, sorry, when it comes to the heart sounds, the cardiology team will come along. Uh, and on one of the shifts, I've ended up asking the cardiology team, I'm like, oh, look, do you mind if I just ask you a real quick question when it comes to, to oscillating heart sounds? Um, I understand the, the theory behind it and where I'm placing it. And I hear that this patient, ha I've, I've, I've read that it has a, the patient has a heart murmur. Would you be able to, to sort of go through with it really quickly with me if you have a bit of time? And when you start to develop a rapport with these, with these doctors, they start to be really forthcoming with this information. They're happy to, to teach you. Um, so that's something I've personally been doing, but that's also an example of what you could be doing within the intensive care unit as well.
take this opportunity to try to refine your own skills and to be learning new new things because these skills are so transferable across any area of nursing. So anyway, that's one little piece of advice. Finally, we come to the number one piece of advice that I would most certainly be giving myself if I had my time again within the intensive care unit as a student. And that's going to be spending the time to really develop a systematic head-to-toe assessment. Now, this is something that we do in the ICU all day, every single day on every single patient is going to be using our systematic head-to-toe assessment. So to start with as a student, I'd be getting some background reading or utilising the information that your educators give to you um, when it comes to a head-to-toe assessment. So understanding the different components of that assessment. Then, this is the most important part, is to be not only just, or to start with, to be watching your nurse perform the head-to-toe assessment and then be getting involved as much as possible. Because what you'll start to see is that patients who are in the intensive care unit, I certainly know the, the, the patients in the units that I'm working in, um, you'll start to see some really abnormal things. So for example, for a patient with end-stage liver failure, you'll start to see the skin change colour to that yellow. You'll start to see their eyes be yellow as well. For, uh, you'll also start seeing for, for patients who... Um, for example, in the gastrointestinal system, who have ascites, so you'll start to see the, 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 the distension of their stomach. You'll start to, to feel the patient uh, who's guarding their stomach. You'll, you just see all of these different things which you may not normally see within different areas because the patients are so sick. So not only are you starting to develop your head-to-toe assessment by watching your nurse and by doing a little bit of extra reading, but then actually perform the skills, you know, oscillate the lung sounds, feel the, the, the distended stomach. Does it feel firm? You'll start to, to start to see the difference between, a, you know, is the abdo soft and, and non-tender or is the patient guarding their tummy and is it, is it firm in some areas, not in others? Uh, so you're looking, listening and feeling and you develop those skills the more that you do it. So... That's by far the number one piece of advice I could give is that when you start to spend the time and develop the systematic head-to-toe assessment, you start to do it that same way all the time, every single time, and then you just don't miss anything. So, yeah, number one for sure. So there we have it. That's my top six pieces of advice that I would give myself if I had my time again as a student nurse within the intensive care unit. Uh, I've again have taken a it's taken a while it's taken the last three months within the my graduate program to get to the point that I'm at now um, you, you're doing it all day every day but as a student nurse you're only there for such a brief period of time and there is just so much to learn I hope that you find this episode helpful with being able to have a think about what you could really start to take away and maximise your learning from your time within the intensive care unit. Again, my name is Ben Jenkins, a graduate nurse working in ICU. If you have any questions at all, please don't hesitate to contact me. My email address is newgradradio at gmail.com or also you'll have the New Grad Radio podcast Facebook page at New Grad Radio. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I can't wait to talk to you next time.